Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. Once again, that's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there. Um, many of you had a week off because in many places schools were closed last week. And so we uh, didn't do this program last week. I hope if you were on vacation that you had a uh, good vacation. I know that you're now back in the trenches uh, filled with energy and enthusiasm. Um, and hearing a lot from a lot of you lately about uh, some of the uh, successes you're having in using Plan B, about some of the uh, frustrations. Um, we'll get to some of those, um, mostly by uh, email, as well as uh, some of the things I've been up to in the last week or two. But as always, these are your 45 minutes. So, um, boy, there's a lot of different things you could be struggling with with Plan B. You know, what I find is that most folks, not all, but most, certainly embrace the idea that challenging behavior is a form of developmental delay, that challenging kids lack crucial cognitive skills, that kids exhibit challenging behavior because they're lacking the skills not to exhibit challenging behavior. Um, people do tend to run into trouble, not on identifying the kids' lagging skills, those are a little easier, but on identifying the highly specific unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion the kids' challenging episodes. That, that can be tough. I was talking with a uh, school system, uh, a group of educators this morning at a school, about developing good Plan B habits. And I, you know, I can't stand the expression habits. On the other hand, for some reason, this morning I was having trouble coming up with any better expression so as to try to avoid the word habits. Um, talk about plan B habits during this program as well. Habits of people doing collaborative problem solving well. Also going to make it a uh, hot topic on the Lives in the Balance website at some point along the way. But once again, these are your 45 minutes. Um, it's a program I've been doing every week this school year to try to provide people who work in education settings and the parents who send their kids into educating, educated <laughs> education settings um, support. If you're running into trouble doing Plan B, uh, you know where to call. Uh, if you're running into trouble identifying those highly specific unsolved problems that are setting the stage for a kid's challenging behavior, you know where to call. If you're having trouble getting your colleagues at school to buy in, uh, I might have a thing or two to say about that. 
This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are trying to implement the collaborative problem-solving approach. And, you know, there are so many schools that I hear from, educators that I hear from, who are implementing the collaborative problem-solving approach to one degree or another. It's really um, a blast, uh, a blast for me to know that uh, Lost at School has had the impact that I was hoping it would have, and a blast to know that that change that needs to occur for us to help challenging kids better than we often do now it's starting to happen. Pretty cool. If you do want to call in, uh, that number is 646-727-2691. 646-727-2691. I didn't uh, arrange for anyone to call in today, so the lines will be wide open. Sometimes during this program in particular, if I don't arrange for a caller, I don't get callers um, on the web-based radio program I do for parents. That's not quite the case. If you're hesitant to call in, and uh, many people have been communicating with me this way, feel free to send a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. And sometimes I'm able to get to those questions during the live program, and sometimes I'm not. I've discovered that multitasking, um, I can do it under some conditions, but if you hear these pregnant pauses during this program, there's an outstanding likelihood that what I'm doing is reading an email somebody sent and trying to talk at the same time. Not that easy to do. I'm always amazed that someone like John Mayer can sing and do the guitar licks that he does simultaneously. Now, maybe neither is taking an enormous amount of thought from him. Maybe he's going all on instinct or all on technique, but I guess that just proves uh, I ain't no John Mayer. I cannot talk and read emails at the same time, try as I might. Who knows? thought we'd start today with a pretty cool email that I got. Um, it's an email from someone who uh, writes a lot of functional behavior assessments. Those of you who work in schools know what an FBA is. It's that thing people do when they're trying to, number one, figure out why a challenging kid is challenging, and number two, what they ought to do about it based on why they think the kid is challenging in the first place. And as you've heard me say on this program before, um, I often don't find a whole lot of originality in people's FBAs. I find that they often say something pretty similar. Oh, the behavior the kid is exhibiting, that I suppose could be different. I mean, he might be spitting or he could be kicking or hitting or throwing or destroying or running or cutting or screaming or swearing. The, the behavior could be different, but if you know collaborative problem solving, you know that's not the most important part. But this is a person who uh, uh, had, had heard me uh, speak and said, I have to write an FBA this afternoon and appreciate the shot in the arm. 
Actually, I'm not sure. Wait a minute. Let me make sure about this. Uh, actually, I don't think this person heard me speak. I think this person... Hang on one second. Now, here I am again, trying to be John Mayer and trying to do a guitar riff while I'm simultaneously reading email. Um, let, me, let me go back in this email chain here. I, I had the wrong email. We've exchanged a few. Uh, here's what the email reads. I've read your book, Lost at School, and totally embraced the need for teaching lagging skills to students. Rather than in our FBAs and our contact with the adults who work with the students, just saying he acts out verbally when he perceives students are making fun of him and calling it finished. What I'm wondering is, um, how will the skills be taught? Um, how do the lagging skills, if we, had, if we incorporate the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems into our FBA, and this is why I always say to people, I'm not saying you shouldn't do your FBA, especially if you have to do your FBA. Let's just make sure that the FBA is um, incorporates the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems so that it's as productive as possible. So here was my answer to this question. Um, the question was about... How is there a, what do I use as a guide for how to teach kids the skills that they're lacking? This is a common point of confusion in collaborative problem solving. The idea that since you're identifying lagging skills in the lagging skills section of the ALSUP, that it must be that you're going to be teaching those lagging skills in a direct fashion, and then people are looking for a curriculum for how to teach lagging skills. And the answer is I don't usually teach lagging skills directly. I usually teach lagging skills indirectly by solving the problems using Plan B that we identified in the unsolved problems section of the ALSIP. Because unsolved problems are the specific conditions, for example, not raising one's hand during class discussions, in which the demands being placed on a child require skills that the child lacks, for example, impulsiveness or failing to anticipate the likely outcomes of one's actions, when you're using Plan B to work on the unsolved problem, you are simultaneously working on the lagging skill that gives rise to that unsolved problem. Unsolved problems are byproducts of lagging skills and demands for those skills. If you're working on the unsolved problem, you're simultaneously working on the lagging skill that gave rise to that unsolved problem. Are you teaching that skill in one trial by working on one unsolved problem that is a byproduct of that lagging skill? No way. No way. Skills don't get taught that quickly. Problems might actually get solved quicker than skills get taught. You, you can solve a fair number of problems, even emanating from the same lagging skill, but not feel confident that the lagging skill is taught yet, although the problem might actually well be durably solved. No, I, lagging skills take longer to teach than unsolved problems do to solve. But let there be no doubt you're working on lagging skills while you're working on unsolved problems, especially 
if you're solving those problems collaboratively because it's only by solving the problems collaboratively, not unilaterally. That's plan A. It's by solving the problems collaboratively that the whole process is one in which the kid would be picking up on skills. He's got to think when you're doing plan B. He's got to learn how to think when you're doing plan B. He's not going to learn how to think when you're doing plan A, except what he thinks of you for doing plan A, and possibly even how he's going to find a way not to do the solution that you unilaterally imposed upon him without any input at all from him. That's what he might be thinking about. In plan B, y'all are partners. Y'all are a team. And y'all got some thinking to do. Him included. You included. Plan B involves thinking. Helping kids learn how to think ultimately is how we get a lot of those lagging skills taught and get a lot of those unsolved problems solved so that the unsolved problems aren't setting in motion challenging behavior anymore. All right, so now let me get to the email that I really wanted to get to. Um, This is the follow-up email. Thanks for the shot in the arm your response offers. Right now, I feel like I'm just meeting legal requirements by writing up FBAs, but really accomplishing little as it relates to making a difference in the lives of students and their teachers. Boy, there's a mouthful. What an interesting thought. You mean a lot of FBAs are written just to satisfy legal requirements? I believe it. I'm not being judgmental here. I appreciate the honesty. A lot of what people do with challenging kids are done to satisfy legal requirements. Well, you're welcome for the shot in the arm, especially if the shot in the arm has you knowing that that FBA doesn't just satisfy legal requirements. It can set in motion all kinds of changes in the way people think about challenging kids can help them move away from thinking that this is attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, limit-testing, unmotivated. Help them realize that in the case of challenging kids, it's about lagging skills and unsolved problems. You can write that into an FBA. And now your FBA isn't just satisfying the legal requirements of the law. It's a document that actually has the potential to change things, to make a difference. Our word for the day is make a difference. Ah, That's three words. Sorry. Our phrase for the day is make a difference. If you're someone who's writing FBAs, This is a document that is supposed to set in motion not only what we're going to be doing with this challenging kid that's supposed to help, but also what we're thinking about him so that what we're doing with him or to him, preferably with him, helps, makes a difference. 
here's here's the here's the good news. You can satisfying the requirements of the law is the easy part. Making a difference, that's the hard part. You can certainly do both simultaneously. I have to satisfy the requirements of the law sometimes. For example, in my outpatient practice, I sometimes have to, I'm a mandated reporter, I have to sometimes report people um, who may be being abusive toward their kid. Um, my honest answer to the question, do I think that reporting them is going to help, the answer is usually no, occasionally yes. When the answer is no, I don't think it's going to help, then I'm simply satisfying the requirements of the law. I'm still on the hook for making a difference, which means i got to do everything in my power, use all of whatever clinical skills I have to try to make sure that the abuse stops. Reporting the kid to the authorities may not make the abuse stop, but does satisfy the legal requirements of the law. Making a difference... That's different. So this is a pretty cool email. I think I'm delighted to give a shot in the arm. The goal of the FBA is not to satisfy the legal requirements of the law. The goal of writing an FBA, of putting that time in, is to make a difference. I understand that it's easy to become jaded. It's easy to go numb, given that sometimes when you're trying to make a difference, the effort can go unrewarded. It, you didn't make a difference when you tried. You know, it happens. Sometimes you make a difference. Try, sometimes you try to make a difference and you didn't make a difference. But that's not reason to go numb, because there's been other times when you tried to make a difference when you did. We don't want to get caught up in the legal requirements and lose sight of the big picture. The big picture is making a difference. Speaking of your FBA, one of the primary goals in writing an FBA is to determine the function of a kid's challenging behavior. Your definition of the word function is going to make a big difference here. Here's one definition, and it's the popular one, at least at this moment in human evolution, or at least in this moment in the evolution of functional behavior assessments. One definition of the word function is that the synonym is working. The function of the behavior is that it's working working at getting the kid something he wants or helping him escape or avoid something tedious, difficult, scary, uncomfortable, boring. I don't like that definition. I think that definition leads us to interventions aimed at proving to the kid that his behavior is not going to work. That message, as you've heard me say perhaps, is usually delivered in the form of punishment or that definition of working often leads us to interventions aimed at trying to encourage what we adults call replacement behaviors that we adults believe will work better. Here's what we want you to be doing, kid, and we'll make it worth your while. No, we didn't talk to you about it. 
we really don't yet understand what's getting in your way. We just know what we want you to do differently, and we're going to make it worth your while. Wait a minute. From a collaborative problem-solving mentality, that makes no sense whatsoever. Because from a collaborative problem-solving mentality, if he could do well, he would do well. Kids do well if they can. Doing well is always preferable to not doing well, but only if a kid has the skills to pull it off. In other words, he probably already knows what you want him to be doing, and he probably doesn't even need a reward to make it worth his while. If he had the skills to do it, he'd be doing it. Which means simply telling him, here's what we want you to do, and we're going to make it worth your while. Well, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, we got to incorporate the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems into our FBA, and we're not going to come to that definition of function. The definition of function we're going to come to is the challenging behavior, the function of challenging behavior, is that it simply communicates to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better, because if he could, he would. Now let's get this show on the road. Let's identify what his unsolved problems are in highly specific terms. Let's figure out what his lagging skills are so we've got the right lenses on. He doesn't need more incentive. He doesn't need more motivation. He needs somebody to help him solve these problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion his challenging behavior, and he needs someone to simultaneously teach him the skills he's lacking, as you've now heard, probably indirectly, just by doing Plan B. So speaking of FBAs, if you're an FBA writer, first of all, um, now you know that you can have a tremendous impact on a kid's life. You can make a difference while simultaneously satisfying the requirements of the law. I'll repeat myself. The goal of an FBA is to make a difference. The goal of Filling out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is to make a difference. The goal of doing Plan B is to make a difference. Thank you for your email. I want to talk a little bit about um, the habits of highly effective people in using collaborative problem solving. Let's think about this a little bit. What are the habits you want to get into? You want to make the use of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems a standard part of assessment protocol and procedure in your school building. You want to be using the language of CPS, the language of lagging skills and unsolved problems. You want to use really specific unsolved problems in the unsolved problems section of the ALSIP. 
If you don't, by the way, if you're not using the LSIP and you're trying to do collaborative problem solving, I don't know how that works. Because it's the LSIP that organizes the effort. It's the LSIP that helps people get the right lenses on, and it's the LSIP that helps us identify what we're working on with the kid, unsolved problems in highly specific terms. I don't know how you do, you know, you could do collaborative problem solving spur of the moment without having filled out the LSIP, but if you've got a very challenging kid, he's got lots of lagging skills, he's got lots of unsolved problems, we've got to organize the effort. We've got to know what we're working on, and we've got to know what we're not working on, because so often we're either working on everything or we're working on nothing. The effort wasn't organized. We, why do we want to be highly specific about our unsolved problems? Because if we're not, number one, we're not going to know what problem we're trying to solve, and neither is the kid. And therefore, in the first step of plan B, the empathy step, where we're trying to gather information about the kid's concern or perspective on the unsolved problem, if we aren't highly specific about the unsolved problem, and I hear about this daily, probably multiple times a day, about how we weren't, we didn't know what we were asking the kid about. We went in vague. The kid didn't know what we were asking about. And so we got a shrug, or an I don't know, or an I don't care, or a defensive kid. when it really traced back to the fact that we weren't very specific about our unsolved problem in the first place. Among the highly among the habits of highly effective people implementing collaborative problem solving, being really specific about unsolved problems is huge. Getting good at drilling for information in the empathy step of plan B in there. Becoming highly skilled about putting your concern on the table. That's in there. Not rushing. In there. Knowing that collaborative problem solving is a process, not a technique. In there. Contemplating solutions, a universe of solutions on the same unsolved problem in there, doing a probability estimate of whether you think the solution that you're about to agree to is actually going to work. What I've been telling people lately is if you'd, if you think the odds of a solution working are below 60 or 70 percent, don't sign up for it. Keep talking. Figure out why your solution why you're rating your solution at below 60 to 70%, probably something about that solution that's giving you pause, that's making you think, I don't think so. If you're thinking, I don't think so, you're not agreeing to that solution. You're saying why you don't think so. And then trying to solve that. Was that a pregnant pause? It's because I'm reading an email. 
I like the point one of our emailers is making. Sometimes it takes a very long time to make a difference, and then a long time to see the difference when the child learns the new skills and behavior, which is the best difference one can make. Yeah, making a difference takes a while. Sometimes a really long time. And if, if we are in love with solutions that that are quick fixes, if if we think we're going to take a kid who's been misunderstood for a very long time, fill out the ALSA, start solving problems with him, and this is going to happen lickety-split, that's why our word for the day a few weeks ago was continuity. Making a difference requires continuity. Making a difference usually takes a long time. Now, if you ask me, which is going to take longer? Not filling out the ALSIP, not doing collaborative problem solving with the kid. Well, that's going to take forever. But sometimes people equate their newfound enthusiasm for collaborative problem solving with this is going to work fast now that I got it. Now that I got it, he's lacking crucial skills and I've identified his unsolved problems. Let's get this show on the road. Truth is, it's not going to go that slow, but making a difference is still going to take a while. This kid's not been doing well for a really long time. It's going to take a while. Thanks for your email. Helping requires continuity. I'm reading another one. That's the pregnant pause. Okay, that's not uh, what I thought it was, but of interest, just not for this program. What uh, what parts of Plan B are you having the most trouble with? You're not rushing through the empathy step, are you? You trying to get all three ingredients packed into eight minutes? Mm. Save your time. I just do the empathy step for those eight minutes if it takes that long. You're not going to get anything solved until you understand the kid's concern or perspective anyways. Um, you're not uh, putting vague, unsolved problems on the table to get Plan B going, are you? That's the sure way, once again, to get I don't know, or I don't care, or a shrug. I said this during a talk in Vermont last week. Most of the time that kids, oh, this is going to sound harsh, don't take it personally, but most of the time kids don't talk. It has more to do with us adults than it does to do with the kid. Luckily, this is a web-based radio program. You can't hurl things at me, but it happens to be true. We tend to put not talking on the kid. Not talking is on us, too. Were we too vague with our unsolved problem? Was our neutral observation not so neutral? Were we doing emergency plan B instead of proactive plan B? Or worse yet, were we doing plan A? instead of plan B. Those are all conversation stoppers. He's not going to talk to you if you're doing that stuff. 
How are you doing at getting your own concern on the table in the define the problem step? How are you doing at packaging in the invitation where you're going to brainstorm solutions? How are you doing at packaging uh, the problem so that both concerns, the kids and yours, are back on the table so it's crystal clear about uh, what problems you're trying to actually, what problem it is you're trying to actually solve. You know you're starting to make headway on getting good at Plan B when you're starting to recognize what it is when you're doing Plan B that you need to look out for so that you don't do it. Then you know. I was um, talking with some educators recently, and we were talking about a kid who, well, I actually heard about the solution first. Um, the solution was that the kid was going to stay at two arm lengths away from his teachers. Of course, not understanding what that was a solution to, I inquired about what the unsolved problem was that that solution was intended to address and found out that Maybe he had some body space issues, but that the unsolved problem had actually been very poorly clarified and that, quite frankly, the group of teachers who were working with the kid really hadn't achieved a consensus on his unsolved problems. I suppose there are some unsolved problems that being two arm lengths away from somebody would solve, but not many. I can think of a whole bunch of unsolved problems that staying two arm lengths away from somebody wouldn't solve. So, being the inquisitive type, I asked for details about why we thought that he had body space issues. And it turned out that not very many people thought he had body space issues. Some people had didn't see him having body space issues at all. They were able to get right up next to him and no problem. And some people also volunteered that... Well, when he was with his friends, he didn't seem to have any body space issues either. He was playing around with them, and they were hanging on him and wrestling. And So we may have established, actually, that the kid didn't like the teacher getting in his face and getting on his case. And that's something being two arm lengths away wouldn't solve. Amazing how efficient it is to clarify the kid's concern or perspective before you start thinking about solutions. It's a lot less efficient to assume you know what his concern or perspective is and then to uh, come up with solutions that are what I've begun calling uninformed solutions. Boy, you could spend an entire school year coming up with uninformed solutions, solutions that don't uh, clarify the kid's concern or perspective, and by the end of the school year, you still won't have any solutions that are working. And you'll have spent an entire school year implementing uninformed solutions. 
collaborative problem solving doesn't take that much time. Collaborative problem solving is much more efficient than that. I was in the news last week uh, doing something that may have been the hardest thing I've ever done as a mental health professional. I was a uh, an expert witness for the defense in a murder trial. Um, I'll be writing a real-world segment about this next. It was uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done as a mental health professional. And I didn't go into it um, thinking I would be a defense witness. I went into it thinking I could lend some expertise. I felt just horrible for the family members of the victim. That, of course, wasn't my role. Um, and the way testimony goes, not something I was able to spend any time saying. But I certainly empathized with the jurors. First of all, they've been taken away from their lives for quite a while. But secondly, they got a tough decision. I empathized with the parents of the accused. I empathized with the accused. It was a tragedy all the way around. Um, I was a nervous wreck. I don't uh, do much testifying in court. Certainly not in murder cases. The gravity of the situation, how immense this was, was palpable to me in that courtroom. It was a tragedy all the way around. These things always are. kid with a long history of mental health issues stabs a kid he doesn't know in a school bathroom. The jury must decide, was he in a state of mind at that moment at which he couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. Um, a 
fascinating case. And um, something that goes on in this country every once in a while, when we are faced with such tragedies, we are given those uh, same options for how to conceive of why humans are violent, why kids are violent, why kids are aggressive, why sometimes kids are so aggressive that someone dies. On the one hand, we have those saying that the kid is was doing it for attention, that it was predatory, planned. On the other hand, we have people saying that it was lagging skills, reactive, impulsive. As I said in court, that distinction is in the literature. A fascinating case. And uh, what we're going to end today's program on, sorry to end on a sober note, but now you know that the stakes are high. You knew that already. Now you also know why our theme for the day was making a difference. You're not just making a difference for the challenging kid and his family. You're making a difference for those around him when you're not simply satisfying the requirements of the law, but doing whatever you can to help. Have a good week. Hope you found this program to be both helpful and informative. I'll talk to you next week.